Hello and welcome to another podcast from the Naval Historical Society of Australia. This is one of the many talks in the archives of the Society recorded over nearly two decades from 1973 until 1980 and now available for you through the Society's website. Today we're listening to Lieutenant Commander Rose in his role as the first captain of HMAS Diamantina. Diamantina as you will all no doubt be aware, is one of the river-class frigates. I had the honour of commanding one of the RN river-class frigates, HMS Fowl, which is the river at the mouth of which is Falmouth. And when I returned from her in 1944 to Australia, I found my delight on calling at Navy office which was then in Melbourne never having been there before that I had been already chosen to be commanding officer of Diamantina I'd never heard of Diamantina until then uh, I hadn't even really known that Australia was building frigates but it was with great pleasure that I found that I'd been chosen to uh, command her I understand uh, what I read only a few days ago in the official history of Australia during the Second World War, that is the naval part of the history, that there were 22 frigates originally planned for the Australian Navy, 10 of them in about 1944 as the war was going very much in our favour were cancelled leaving 12. I've also read that only six of them were actually commissioned by the time VP Day arrived on the 15th of August in 1945. The other six were duly commissioned because they were all under construction. Maryborough was the site of the building of Diamantina and when I went up there in October 19. 44, I found that she was an exact replica of the uh, British frigates. Obviously they were being built here according to the same set of plans. And I think I rather astonished the shipyard manager by uh, walking around the ship on my first inspection of the not completed uh, vessel. I say, well here will be the gunner's uh, office and here's the engineer's office and here's the sick bay and so forth and um, I was able to uh, add perhaps a few suggestions here and there which I'd found in the Atlantic were advantageous to us and we finished up eventually with an excellent ship and I would say from what I've seen of uh, Diamantina that she's equal if not better well not if not I'd say definitely a bit better than any British ship that I have seen comparable to her. The same went for the crew too. I'm an Englishman by birth but I've been living in this country for 55 years and I travel on an Australian passport. In, the, uh, in my war service I was on exchange 
to the RN for four years and I had a lot of experience of serving with British seamen and British officers and I found when I came back to Australia that the calibre of the Australian RN, RAN rating was somewhat superior to that of the RN rating. The reason being for this, I think, is that in Australia the uh, naval ratings were then still and always have been volunteers, whereas by 1944 in the RN quite a number of our ratings were uh, conscripts and there wasn't quite the same feeling of willingness uh, amongst them uh, as there was with our ratings here. Well the ship was commissioned in Harvey Bay outside Middlesbrough after we'd taken the ship down the river for the uh, acceptance trials. The river has a very shallow mouth, there's a bar that runs across the river mouth. <coughs> to get the ship down the river and then down to Sydney she took aboard an absolute minimum of ammunition, a minimum of stores and a minimum of oil fuel, just a little bit up our sleeves. The ballast tanks were trimmed so that she was on as even a keel as possible and she got over at high spring tides with a foot underneath her keel. But we managed to get out into Harvey Bay and the acceptance trials were carried out and we spent the first night in the lee of uh, Fraser Island. Fraser Island, as far as I know, was very little visited by civilians and it did have at that time a commando training school based on it which was the presence of which was presumed to be generally uh, not known to the civilian population but on the night bef uh, that uh, we stayed there I had been given a private tip-off that the commando school was going to attempt to board the ship I didn't uh, let the secret out but I did have sentries posted telling them just to be on the watchful uh, alert all the time and I'm glad to say that they were able to see in the shadows a, a canoe or two canoes gradually coming down on the tide towards the ship and they alerted us that we were about to be raided and the raid was not successful as far as the commanders were concerned. The next morning the ship was commissioned at 8 o'clock on the 27th of April 1945. So it had <coughs> what we know now was a very short war service. When we sailed in that ship we had no idea really how long we were going to be away except that we were all full of confidence that the war would be won in our favour and it was in increasingly evident that with uh, America and the British Pacific Fleet out here uh, that the Japanese were in serious trouble and the island hopping was just almost a weekly habit. We went up from here after doing various gunnery trials outside to New Guinea calling at Cairns for fuel out through the Grafton Passage and up Coral Sea, then through China Strait, 
off the southeast end of Papua through Raven Channel, which some of you may know, and up northwest along the north coast of New Guinea to Madang. We had no idea what was in front of us, but when we got to Madang, I went ashore to report. Uh, much to my uh, delight, I found that we had a, a most important mission ahead of us. You might remember that earlier that year, His Royal Highness the Duke of Gloucester had been appointed and taken up office as the Governor-General of this country. And he had decided that he wanted to see Australian troops in action because by reason of his position as Governor-General, he was Commander-in-Chief in Australia. And we were told in Madang that Darmantina had to proceed across the uh, Solomon Sea to Torakina, which is on the west coast of Bougainville. And our job was to uh, embark the Duke and take him up as far as we could get up the west coast, as close to the front line as possible so that he could see the troops in action. Well, <coughs> the charts that we had of the Solomon Sea were not too bad, but when we got down to large-scale charts of the west coast of Bougainville, we found that most of the west coast was just shown as a, a broken line, just like it is down in the middle of the road here, which means you can wander from side to side. But on a chart, it means that it's just uh, not uh, defined. But before we left Madang, the uh, NRIC there gave me some American charts of the harbour, only of Torokina Harbour. And we found our way into the harbour and uh, anchored in the middle. And then I thought, uh, just for fun, I'd transfer our anchorage to the Admiralty chart. And when I transferred our latitude and longitude and got a, a position, I found, to my astonishment, we were five miles inland. That's, that's how good the Admiralty charts were. Well, a few days later, we had to take the Duke up the west coast, and no vessel uh, with as deep a draft as Diamantina had ever been up that coast before, either warship or merchant ship, either in peacetime or wartime. That's how isolated the vicinity was. And so that we would be putting on a show of confidence in front of the Duke, I had to take the ship up for a dummy run beforehand and uh, find a, a safe navigable passage between the various reefs. We were assisted very much in this by something I've never heard of before or since. We navigated by army maps. The army had a, an, a, a printing section in the jungle, working in tents, and they printed uh, maps for us, taken from aerial photographs. And they were printed in colour. I don't know whether the photographs were, were colour photographs, but the prints were certainly in uh, colour. And the sea was in various shades of green and yellow, uh, gradually getting darker and darker green, showing deeper and deeper water and yellower and yellower yellows until you realise that uh, the palest yellow was somewhere you had to keep very clear of. So from that we were able to to uh, find our way with 
comparative ease up to Freddy Beach as it was called which was about 60 miles north of us on the west coast um, we came back again uh, with a lot of wounded the base troops on the beach were very surprised to see us come round the headland and they asked us would we uh, mind taking some stretcher cases and some walking wounded back so we very, were very pleased to bring those back and the uh, wounded were no doubt pleased themselves they were back in hospital with proper hospital attention several days before they would have got back otherwise well on the day that the uh, Duke was to come aboard I went ashore at nine o'clock to be present at a review of the uh, troops in front of the Duke and I was met, met by a young officer from the naval office there to say that the whole thing was off that early that morning Mr Curtin the Prime Minister of Australia had died and at that moment the Duke was on his way back to Australia by air so uh, beautiful trip with our very uh, highly ranking uh, guest was presumably off. I found it later in the day by no means was the trip off, it was only he that was missing the generals and the brigadiers and the colonels had arranged everything so nicely that we still did the trip <laughs> and we, <laughs> we had a very uh, excellent uh, all seafood dinner that night in a marquee on a an island around which a, an ML patrol to uh, stop any lacatories from getting on the island and bothering us and we also uh, went outside the group of islands at the north end of Bougainville and carried out a bombardment our target was Japanese artillery positions quite unseen to us and we were probably a couple of miles off one of the uh, bigger islands and our spotting was done by a Royal New Zealand Air Force plane which was circling around over the target and uh, radioing to us our fall of shot we had a successful bombardment and bombardments were the only type of action that Diamantina took part in after we got back to uh, Torikina and reported we were again sent up north and told to uh, uh, carry out another bomb or rather to investigate a channel if we could to a new bombardment position which would be closer to the targets but again out of sight so with the help of an ML and our own ship's motorboat going ahead of us taking soundings we got a couple of lines of soundings and the ship's teamed along very carefully in between and found an anchorage off the south coast of one of the islands we later carried out a bombardment from that position and again we couldn't see the target but the army in the meantime had made, made one of their artillery officers into a, what they called a bombardment liaison officer sent him ashore on this island the poor fellow had to climb through jungle right to the top of the hill and become an observation post and carrying a, a radio set with him so he was spotting for us and radioing back to us our fall of shot there again we spent over well over a hundred rounds of uh, 
I exposed it four inch with very good results. We believe we were told by the uh, aircraft that we'd very probably destroyed at least one of their guns and we certainly kept their heads down. On our way back to Tarakina we again made ourselves available as a floating ambulance and took some more wounded back with us. Our next exploit was back to the same position a fortnight or so later and to make sure that we had a very good platform to fire from I dropped an anchor to steady the ship and we carried out a very successful bombardment at the end of which I heaved the pickup and turned around and we no sooner turned around and started to steam away and plonk with a big splash where we'd been so seeing it was our second bombardment from that position we think that the Japanese must have uh, eventually worked out where the uh, fire was coming from but we, we uh, were safely on our way from it after that bombardment we then steamed around the west of this group of islands which were to the west of Buca Passage. I don't know whether any of you know the Solomons at all, but the Solomons is a long chain of islands running approximately south-south-east to north-west. Most of them are the British Solomon Islands, or were, the British Solomon Islands Protectorate, uh, run by the uh, British government under its colonial department. But the two northernmost islands, the small one of Buca, and then the larger one of Bougainville had been German originally and they became mandated to the Australian government along with the rest of the territory of New Guinea mandated to Australia by the League of Nations at the end of World War One, and they were still mandated territories although the League of Nations in 1945 had virtually ceased to exist we steamed round the <coughs> west of this group of islands which was shielding Buca Passage between the two main islands round the north during the night and by daylight the Japanese found that they had a frigate some miles out to sea on their eastern side they'd never seen one out there before and we just lay off there and we carried out our largest bombardment of all on different targets which were encampments there again we had a plane spotting for us and all we could see of the coast was just a line as a lot of you know just a line of palm trees just about an eighth of an inch high at a distance of some miles and uh, we were firing at our extreme range of 18,000 yards or just about our extreme range which is uh, about 12 miles, land miles we could see the puffs of smoke rising from the uh, jungle and we were told that our, one of our salvos of 10 rounds had fallen in an area of 15 yards by 50 yards well that's no more than the average size of a Sydney suburban building block so that when 10, 10 four-inch high-explosive shells fell in an area like that 
I think uh, we were quite right in claiming that we'd carried out a good job. After that, we went up to Manus Island, which is in the Admiralty Group, but still part of the mandated territory. And at that stage, it was under the control of the uh, USN. And there we stayed for a few days, virtually resting. Then we came back to uh, New Guinea again, and we were given another task which we didn't complete. In the preparation for our final task, the atomic bombs were dropped in Japan at the beginning of August, and we were then planning or starting to carry out the, the first stages of setting up a base at the northern end of Choiseul, which was the northernmost of the British protectorate of Solomon Islands. And we went there, anchored, and we went ashore and found the remains of a Japanese encampment in Japanese gardens but the Japanese had pulled out and crossed the strait to uh, Bougainville. That was the end of the ship's hostilities, but we were, we were involved in three different surrenders. One was to go down on the west coast of Bougainville to meet a Japanese barge off the Mevo River, off the southwest, about the southwest corner of uh, Bougainville. The Japanese troops on the island were being pushed into the into the southern end by the Australian uh, soldiers, and we uh, met there a Japanese landing barge flying a white flag and we took aboard from her General, Lieutenant General Kanda, his Chief of Staff, who is another General, uh, a Vice Admiral, and a couple of other officers, and brought them with us up to Torokina and landed them and handed them over to the Army. Later that morning, about half an hour afterwards, they formally signed a surrender document. About two days after that we started our second surrender job, which was of more importance as far as we were concerned. We uh, had been chosen as senior officer, uh, which is not a very important title when you're the only ship, but we were, we were senior officer of the naval force uh, taking part in the surrender of Nauru and Ocean Islands. We took with us a brigadier, Brigadier Stevenson, who uh, slept in my cabin, I used my sea cabin, and he had a staff of uh, 16 altogether, which included Australian, I think two or even three Australian military history section. I don't know whether you knew they had a history section but they had reporters and they had uh, photographers and cinematographers. We had BBC uh, uh, photographers and BBC uh, radio reporters. 
newspaper reporters and we also cared from the military history section an official artist uh, two or three people on the brigadier staff and a couple of military policemen we took uh, under our wing uh, River Glenelg and River Burdekin which were a couple of the river class merchant ships built in Australia during the war they carried uh, Lieutenant Colonel Kelly with about 400 Australian soldiers between them and a few civilians who were representing the British Phosphate Commission and the British uh, British and uh, New Zealand governments. The day before we reached Nauru we pushed on ahead of the convoy and sighted the island spot on at seven o'clock and we approached it with everybody at action stations. We had no knowing whatsoever whether the Japanese on the island were aware that the war, war was over. This was then about the 13th of September, a full four weeks after VP Day, and nobody had any clue whatsoever whether the Japanese were aware that the war was over. I still don't know whether they knew or not, but I think they may have done. But they had no means of communicating with us or through Japan to us. So we closed the island, uh, closed up for action stations. Uh, of the boys wishing to goodness they'd uh, let fly something at us, but they didn't. I tried an all-this lamp, that didn't have any effect, so I looked up the uh, international code of signals and uh, picked a couple of groups out of there which uh, we hoisted, which uh, said, please send boat, and the other group was representative, please send boat with a representative. So out from the little boat harbour came a landing craft flying the white flag and two of the Japanese sailors and one Japanese officer. He came off to get instructions which he was given by the uh, brigadier staff and later that afternoon right on time the commanding officer of the troops on the island came out <coughs> accompanied by four of his staff and uh, surrendered. We had a couple of tables drawn up across the quarter deck. Uh, there was a bit of wind and we had a green beige cloth covering it. We held the, held the uh, cloth down with uh, the uh, bases of some four-inch shells of which we'd been using, which had been cut down nicely for souvenirs. And uh, as they approached the table, the uh, commanding officer who was a lieutenant commander lieutenant commander Suzuki he handed his sword over across the table to the brigadier the other officers handed theirs over and then they all sat down and there were five of us on our side of the table I was the official representative appointed as the official representative of the navy and there was an official representative of the Australian Air Force there was an official representative of the British Phosphate Commission and one from the New Zealand government. The reason for all these representatives of the different governments was that the Nauru was part of a man was a mandated territory 
I don't think it was actually part of the Australian uh, mandated territory of New Guinea, but it was a separate mandated territory from the League of Nations, having been uh, previously owned by the uh, Germans. But all its use was was as a mine for phosphates, which had been created by the uh, seagulls over thousands or millions of years. And the mining of this phosphate was the only industry carried on on the island. There were, or had been rather, a few natives. <coughs> when we got there, we found that the entire population of the island was Japanese except for one Chinese man who was there previous to the Japanese occupation. He was closely interrogated and he told us that a couple of Roman Catholic missionaries had been on the island when the Japanese appeared. They'd been shifted away to the Marshall Islands. But there were three remaining uh, white men, I think they must have been Australians. One was the senior Australian on the spot and he deemed it was his duty to remain there and his second in command and another Australian. And they had been beheaded only a few weeks or so before we arrived. So that at the time we arrived there, were, there was only this one Chinese who was acting as a, had been acting as an interpreter between the Japanese and the natives, but the natives also had been transhipped away from the island. The people on the island were about two and a half thousand Japanese naval troops and about 800 Korean natives. Uh, Korean civilians used as labourers. Uh, from the period that the people have been on the island they must all have passed into their various zones and even into the further zones because apparently nobody in the island was of a lower rating than petty officer so uh, we wondered what happened with some of the uh, unpleasant jobs that one finds have to, be, have to be done in a naval establishment or a naval ship with perhaps a junior petty officer being captain of the heads. <laughs> but uh, there it was, about a couple of thousand or 2,400 of these were placed aboard these two river class merchant ships and brought back to Australia. The orders that uh, the captains of the ships had were that a certain degree of discomfort was to be accepted and uh, that meant that the Japanese were crowded into the holes and the tween decks as closely as they could be packed. And they were brought back and then one of them, one of the ships went back to Nauru to pick up more stores. We went back to Torikina to report and then we went off again, picked up this other ship and proceeded further out to Ocean Island. Uh, much the same procedure took part took place there and that's why I say that's the third of the surrender ceremonies there's one little sidelight 
about that trip which made it uh, of interest to uh, a lot of the uh, men aboard the Diamantina. When we were at uh, Nauru, HMS Kia Kia turned up there with the resident commissioner of the Gilbert and Ellis Island colony. The Gilbert Islands are a group of islands north of the equator, or almost all of them to the north of the equator, but Ocean Island was one of them just to the south of the equator. And the Ellis Islands are a very large, far-flung group of smaller islands to the south of the equator. But the two groups were combined in the Gilbert and Ellis Island colony with a resident commissioner who was only who had only been in his job for about a year, uh, Colonel Fox Strangways, at the main island of Tarawa. Uh, at the beginning of the war, Tarawa was in British, oh, under British con civilian control. Then the Japanese came and they occupied the place for a couple of years. Then the American Marines came along and recaptured it. And after a year or so, they handed it back in their island hopping. They left Tara far away behind. So the resident commissioner, <coughs> pardon me, suggested that I took Diamantina to Tara. He said the natives there have not seen a white ensign since before the war. And they'd be thrilled. He said they're terribly patriotic and they'd love to see a white ensign. We, in those days, flew exactly the same ensign. So the natives wouldn't know whether it was a, an HM or an HMA ship. It was a white ensign and they understood the white ensign and they understood the significance of it. So he asked me, when I came back again, to do the surrender of Ocean Island to visit him at Tarawa. I told him I couldn't do that. I, wouldn't, uh, I didn't have sufficient authority for that. But I suggested to him that he put in a request to the resident commissioner of the British colonies in the West Pacific, who was situated at uh, Fiji. He would then send the request further upstairs to the colonial office, would eventually get to the Admiralty, and then it would start to come downstairs and it would come out to ACNB and then eventually land up in NOIC New Guinea in Madang and sure enough after about a week I received HMAS Diamantina from ACMB you are instructed to proceed to Tarawa so it all worked out very nicely and we were very pleased because Tarawa was so close to the line that uh, on the way back from Tarawa we were able to do a little bit of crossing and recrossing the equator for the benefit of the uh, fellows that hadn't been in the Northern Hemisphere before. Well, that was virtually the end of the Diamantina's wartime activities and the surrender activities. I came back to Australia uh, at the end of November. I left the ship. I was very high on the list of the point system, which some of you no doubt remember. And uh, I'd had over six years' service, and about five of it was overseas. I was married with two children, and I was 
in my early 40s, so that on all rounds I scored highly, but my total points were something like 430. So I was about the first man off the ship. And I came back in the uh, West Australia. Well now I think, but the only thing that I can add to that is that I was invited by the uh, final captain of Diamantina to uh, board the ship in November, uh, 15 months ago, November 1979, and steam around the harbour on her final cruise. She came back from sea in the morning, about 8 o'clock in the morning, and at 9 o'clock we started this decommissioning cruise around the harbour. She flew a long decommissioning pennant that was so long it had to be supported by at least two, perhaps three balloons tied at spaces along it to keep it from dragging in the water. We went down the harbour and up harbour again under the bridge and back and berthed at uh, Garden Island. And I thought that was the end. But I was told at the time that there was a, a move on foot by various people. I, I don't know whether your branch here of the Historical Society uh, was involved in it, but I was told there was a, a move on foot and a pretty strong one, which the CO was supporting to his limit, that the ship should be preserved. As no ship of the RAN, either of the First or Second War or any other period, had ever been preserved and it was the last chance that they would ever have of having a real warship, a man of war. Not a one man of war has served the whole commission and been, been built and finally decommissioned in peacetime, of which there have been a number. Another thing that was considered to be rather remarkable about the ship was that she had twin screws and uh, reciprocating steam engines, which apparently are getting rather rare in the world. <coughs> and I was told that the ship might be preserved, on the other hand it might be uh, scrapped and turned into razor blades. And uh, at the end of September last year I had a <coughs> an unexpected telephone call from the ABC from Stuart McLennan who said he was running a big country and one of the uh, parts of be a big country was to be about Diamantina and uh, in a week's time from then Diamantina was going to be steamed up to Brisbane I hadn't known of this before to be handed over by uh, Jim Killen, the Minister for Defence to the Queensland Maritime Museum Association for eventually going back into Evans Deacon's dry dock at South Brisbane. Now I, I had taken the ship into that dock in 1945 and the ship was built in Queensland by Queensland uh, skilled men and it was very appropriate that she should finish her days in Queensland I thought but for some reason they thought it would uh, make a good episode on a big country. They were going to supply uh, 
a film crew to go up in the ship. They were going to uh, take me up to Brisbane if I was willing to go. Uh, I was only too glad to go up. They sent a car out for me, paid my return fare by air to Brisbane, looked after my accommodation in Brisbane, and uh, it didn't cost me a penny. And uh, even a taxi back home from Mascot was all paid for by them. And in Brisbane, uh, after a night in the motel at Hamilton, I boarded a, a Bertram, uh, Bertram 3, I think it was called, uh, a very fast uh, ocean-going boat, game-fishing boat, which um, took me down the river from before 7 o'clock in the morning, right down the river, right up Morton Bay, and out close under the headland of uh, Morton Bay, out to sea, and then we eventually saw Diamantina coming up. Now Diamantina was sailing the Red Ensign because she'd been decommissioned. But it was interesting to know that uh, she had 14 naval officers and uh, senior ratings who were looking after the uh, mainly the engine room and electrical equipment. She had. Um, well, the senior officer was uh, Commander Peter Cook Russell, who had been one of the uh, commanding officers of Diamantina. <coughs> and the rest of her crew, about another 60 people, were civilian members, quite a number of whom had been seafarers, either uh, naval or uh, merchant uh, seamen or officers, and um, six women. I was very interested to know that you had to notice tonight that you had lady members, and I'm very pleased to see that uh, there are ladies who are interested in the uh, service that their men have uh, given a lot of their lives to, a lot of long periods of their lives to. It's, it is comforting to know that the women do support the men in the efforts of your society and in the taking of the ship. Back to Brisbane, there were six lady members who split themselves into two watches. The first watch went on about six in the morning and they handed over at uh, 1300 to the second watch. They carried a civilian chef and uh, I think a lot of the bunks must have been stripped out of the ship because they couldn't accommodate me and the ship. Uh, about half of the civilian crew were um, carrying their own sleeping bags. When the ship got into Morton Bay, some of the civilians uh, left the ship and I was taken aboard the ship and uh, given a bunk in the sick bay, which had been vacated. And uh, I found that an old friend who served in the same escort group with me in the North Atlantic, Captain Harold Chesterman, I don't know if any of you know him at all, he was captain of the uh, um, Cape uh, Lewin up to a couple of years ago. The lighthouse ship was aboard. And uh, he was an old friend of mine. And at the last minute he'd, uh, he'd been taken aboard the ship because they, they wanted sufficient certificated officers to be able to run three watches on the bridge. So he with his master's certificate was uh, uh, up on the forecastle there uh, 
uh, weighing anchor for the first time for about 30 years in his life trying to remember what to do anyway we went up the river the next morning uh, accompanied by a fleet of about 20 uh, ferries and uh, motorboats a couple of helicopters from channel 7 and 9 flew overhead one of them with a, an ABC camera team we had a camera team on board the ship and I was interviewed in that and just a few weeks ago <coughs> I was told that they were having some trouble with the dry dock uh, and there was a delay in getting the ship into the dry dock since the war and I think only about six years ago or thereabouts uh, the Captain Cook Bridge had been built across the Brisbane River lower down than the Story Bridge so low that very few ships could get under it and to get Diamantina under this and up into the uh, dry dock they would have to take or uh, they may have done it by now take the uh, top section of the funnel off and at least half the mast the mast had already been shortened by the way to get the ship underneath the, uh, the uh, bridge and then into the dry dock the dry dock had about six feet of tilt in it some years ago they had very very severe uh, floods in Brisbane which went over the dock gates and uh, left a lot of silt in the dry dock the uh, blocks were thought possibly rotting underneath all this silt for some years so the um, Maritime Museum Association were making or having made a new set of blocks and absolutely tight-fitting blocks, not just the ordinary blocks that are in the bottom of most dry docks upon which any ship can sit. They had blocks so that there'd be a block under every frame or every alternate frame. Each one absolutely contoured so the ship would be sitting there and be able to be there for 50 or 100 years. And uh, that part of the... Uh, of the uh, ship's career, the final stage of taking it under the bridge and into the dock was supposed to be recorded by the ABC but it was delaying them too long in their uh, broadcasting uh, television program and they've had to uh, omit that from their program. What the program is going to be in detail I've no no. Uh, no knowledge of what it's like, likely to be except that they took an immense amount of uh, film uh, I did learn that their average is something like 10 to 1 for about every 100 feet of film they take they only use about uh, 10 feet but with some of the uh, commercial stations and advertisements they might use only 10 out of 200 feet well I hope I haven't kept you too long I've kept you more than 20 minutes Mr President ladies and gentlemen but uh, I've tried to give you some thing about the short history of the ship rather than of myself because it's a ship that you're studying and interested in in your uh, activities and I hope that in describing the short career of Diamantina I've been able to place
in your mind a proper perspective of what was and is the only remaining warship of Australia's Navy. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. If you're looking for more information about Australian naval history, then you should use our website. You'll find more podcasts, articles from our quarterly in-house magazine, Naval Historical Review, and a range of e-books, monographs, and ship's plans for sale in our online shop. If you have any questions or research inquiries about Australian naval history, then feel free to contact us. Use the link on the website home page. The Society is a not-for-profit organisation which relies on your continuing support. Please use our website links to become a member, or donate now, or sign up as a volunteer, or subscribe to our newsletters. See you next time.